Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering all things blockchain. Cryptocurrencies, NFTs, DeFi, DAOs, you name it, we're covering it. But there's one catch. We focus on the legal framework surrounding blockchains. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guest is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. I'm really excited for this podcast with Haley Lennon. She's a partner at Anderson Kill Law, where she provides legal consulting to crypto and fintech companies. We really dig into her history in crypto, as she's been in the game since around 2013, previously spending time as regulatory counsel for companies that you may have heard of called Coinbase, Bitflyer, and Silvergate Bank. I found Haley on Twitter, where she has about as many followers as the price as the price of Bitcoin in US dollars. Uh, I don't know if her follower count adjusts based on the price of Bitcoin, uh, but as you can imagine, it's quite high as of this recording. Her tweets are entertaining and informative. I definitely recommend you give her a follow, and she's frequently found speaking at major conferences about the laws surrounding cryptocurrencies. We speak a lot about her public speaking ability, about her career, and about Joe Biden's plans to really focus on crypto. So we talk a little bit about what Haley thinks when she hears things like that. Hope you enjoy. Hey, Haley, thank you so much for joining me today. Really looking forward to speaking with you. As I mentioned earlier, when you followed me on Twitter, it was one of the highlights of the month for sure. So thanks for joining the Law of Code podcast. Thanks for having me and thanks for the compliment. Twitter is a funny world where you get to know people before you actually know them. So happy to meet. I thought we'd start where I always do with your Genesis block. So where you first heard of Bitcoin and I'm assuming it's Bitcoin based on your tweets and uh, sort of experience in the space. Could you tell me a bit about when you first discovered Bitcoin and your initial thoughts? Yeah, so I you know, finished law school started my career as a traditional lawyer and joined a company a few years out that did traditional wholesale currency exchange. Um, I was in San Diego at the time. And so there are exchange centers along the Mexico border that are exchanging dollars to pesos for for individuals who who have paychecks and are uh, crossing the border to and from Mexico. And so when I was there, my boyfriend at the time, I remember started telling me about Bitcoin. And I think in part because I was working at a company that was so cash heavy and focused, I was like, what is he taught? Like, I, I just had no, I, I just couldn't even wrap my head around it. It's not, it, you know, it, I understand the people that at first are skeptics because to me, I was at first skeptical i was like this sounds like internet money i don't understand like it sounds it sounds like toy money um but pretty quickly after that i started researching it too because um i had a few my boyfriend and a few friends getting really excited about it and that was this was back in 2013 um and then coincidentally at the time silvergate bank was in la jolla and they were looking to cr- sort of become the first crypto friendly bank and they 
saw sort of the overlap in what I was doing at the traditional currency exchange company. And um, I started talking to them. And, and that's when I really, like when the light really turned on and I was like, wow, this is a, this is a whole booming industry already. And, and some people don't even know what the word Bitcoin is, you know? So um, that, that was sort of the, my aha moment back in 2013. And was there a reason that they reached out to you besides your role working for an exchange? Did you say, like, did you have some interest in crypto or write anything at the time? Or why would they have, you know, reached out to you or did you reach out to them? So it was both. Um, I was sort of just in dialogue with Silvergate. But the reason that I really got on their radar and they saw the value in bringing me on as sort of their crypto legal advisor is that there's a lot of overlap between the state money transmitter license and the uh, federal FinCEN money service business AML side of things, whether it be traditional dollars or crypto. So because I was doing due diligence on these little exchange centers along the Mexico border, they saw the parallel and said, okay, you can come to Silvergate and do that sort of level of due diligence on Coinbase Kraken, like all the big exchanges that were in existence at the time. And so that's sort of how it unfolded. That must have been such an interesting part of your life going through, you know, not not to say boring, but, you know, the traditional exchange, changing dollars to pesos to this whole new ball game. How did you adjust those those first couple months? And what did you tell people, like your parents, yeah. about what you were doing? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a nice transition because it was still going to a traditional bank. So um, And so I kind of eased into it a little bit professionally. But um, I remember going to my first Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin was really the only crypto at the time. Um, the whole what is a security, what is not with the SEC wasn't a thing. Like it was so early. And um, I went to my first Bitcoin conference in San Diego, I think my within my first few months at Silvergate. Um, and I saw um, a few different you know, well-known companies talking about crypto and paying their, wanting to pay their employees in crypto or doing stock or equity on the blockchain. And I was just really mind blown. So, I mean, I, I, I think that whenever someone transitions from a career in traditional finance to, or traditional law um, or any sort of regular job to a day-to-day -day in crypto it's like the first few months is drinking from the fire hose but in a really good way you're sort of like wow everything I've come to understand or everything I haven't understood about money can be challenged by this new technology so I was just super excited. Yeah I can imagine going from that system to one where you're looking into crypto you would really experience the efficiencies and all the benefits of adopting Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, probably better than anyone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I the company I was with before Silvergate actually had like the armored transportation vehicles to transport a million pesos to the bank to convert it to dollars, to transfer dollars back to the Mexico border. I mean, and there's, there is still a use case for that clearly. I mean, the, the, the adoption of cryptocurrency hasn't like replaced all of that yet but yeah to see it, it really felt like I was leaving my job at a post office and going to work at like Google or something you know it was just like oh this is you don't need any of that um I started seeing Chainalysis I remember came in at like 
2013 or 2014 at Silvergate and gave us a um, demo of how blockchain monitoring work and how the web uh, the web of blockchain addresses functioned and the dark web portions of it. And I was just sitting there like, what is, what's going on? <laughs> no, that's, it's a good point about dollars too. I think they'll always be needed for money laundering and, and other things <laughs> like that. But uh, for now, crypto's really, really growing. What, what I really admired about your career when I was doing some background for the call was you, how you played offense instead of defense. It seems like you went out and sought after opportunities in the crypto space. And a lot of people I speak with in the legal community, you know, they end up in say reinsurance law because that's where a position was. You were a summer associate at a personal injury firm, yet you were, you know, associate general counsel at Coinbase. Now you're a partner at Anderson Kill doing crypto first time. How would you say young lawyers should think about playing offense as opposed to playing defense, especially when it's so easy and I'm seeing in private practice to get bogged down with work because you really are the lowest on the totem pole and you do need to support the more junior or more senior lawyers. So how would you, how would you advise people think about it and how did you think about it? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I, I always thought of myself as sort of risk averse, but now that I look back at my career, I don't think I really was. I think taking sort of calculated risks. um, I think I tweeted a few weeks ago that it's kind of crazy to me that like everyone knows that we're only here for a short time and yet people play it safe. Um, You know, I think I benefited from a position when I was younger you know, um, I think younger attorneys that don't have families to support and things like that, you can be a little riskier with jumping around roles. Um, but I think that when you do your research and start to see what are the um, companies in the space that you respect um, or companies that are doing things the right way, if you want to be an in-house um, or really do your research on the law firms that are Function, you know, functioning in the legal practice that you're interested in, um, you know, taking those risks are really important. And um, I mean, I had the luxury at Silvergate of really having like a bird's eye view of the industry, um, and, and it was early on. And so there's a bit of hard work and there's a bit of luck there. But I remember, um, you know, Bitflyer was not the first company to sort of know about me through Silvergate and be interested in me joining. But I really was trying to make sure that my me leaving Silvergate was a really hard decision because it was safe. And I had been there two years and I had created this program and it was sort of a well-functioning machine. Um, And I was starting to oversee a team of uh, people that were doing transaction monitoring for the space um, of all of our crypto clients. You know, we grew Silvergate from one crypto client to about 70. And now I think since I've left, they've grown into like 400 or 450 clients. But so when I finally decided to join Bitflyer, it was a really hard decision. I had to, I had been in San Diego eight years. I packed up everything and moved to San Francisco Um, I left sort of a a comfortable job where I had a a safe role with not too much responsibility to like joining Bitflyer as the four founding U.S. people and becoming the head of legal and compliance. It was terrifying. (laughs) Um, And uh, but it but like sometimes those risks are worth it and sometimes they're not. And when they're not, you have to just trust that 
if you keep sort of making calculated risks, in my opinion, you end up where you're supposed to be. And I think a transition like that to, I'm sure part of your consideration was, I'm going to learn so much more if I make this move with more responsibility and, and you, you make my job easy because the next question was about Bitflyer and, and joining Bitflyer because you, you did so much really interesting work with obtaining money transmitter licenses and the New York Bit License, uh, built and scaled Bitflyer's BSA and AML program. I don't know how much you can disclose there, but could you maybe explain more from a, a higher level approach on how you went about navigating all that newfound responsibility? Because as someone who's worked, who's working in private practice, there's a lot of in-house counsel things that I can imagine I, I haven't been exposed to, and I imagine you weren't exposed to, even just going from Silvergate to Bitfire. So how did you go about figuring out what you didn't even know at that time? Yeah. Um... Yeah, I mean, I think every role I've taken, I've taken in part because I knew I would learn a lot. And I also knew that most of it I might have to teach myself. I like, I mean, it's, I'm sure it sounds ridiculous, but Google has helped me <laughs> tremendously in my career. I mean, you, um, when it comes to becoming a GC and all of a sudden having an, a, a very deep specific employment law question i mean doing that legal research um in the crypto space news moves so fast that usually google and twitter are the best places to go westlaw really doesn't have uh the case law on crypto yet so um so i remember just telling myself that um anything i didn't know i could learn um and i think i mean i'm sure there's limitations to that but when you're in an industry you're passionate about, um, you can either find out the answer or no one else knows the answer either. And so you go talk to people about it. Um, I also, maybe more than other companies, now that I've experienced other companies at Silvergate, I, I mean, sorry, at Bitflyer, I really, um, and at Silvergate, but even more so at Bitflyer, like I really tried to view regulators as allies until they proved otherwise. And so I just remember sort of um, taking every opportunity I had to talk to state regulators and New York DFS and really say, you know, what is your biggest concern about this space? Like, what is it? Why is it that only three companies have gotten the bit license so far? What are you, what, what are you so worried about? You know, because if it's something we can't answer or we haven't figured out well enough, we want to. And if we, um, if it's something we can easily answer, like just put that question or that issue out there. Um, and so, you know, without going into like a ton of detail, I think that it's become really clear that some of the concerns New York DFS specifically has is in terms of cybersecurity, hot, cold storage, um, you know, transaction monitoring, privacy coins, that sort of thing. And so instead of sort of, um, skirting around those topics, I remember just trying to say what what is what what are your questions? What what document could we hand you that would let you sleep at night? Right? Because like regulators and lawyers and companies, everyone just wants to like get what they need and that so they can feel like comfortable with it. Right? So 
so that I remember that being a big thing. And, but I also remember like there, there was a lot of cultural differences to, to balance. I mean, our entire headquarters and hundreds of employees and executive team was, is in Japan for Bitflyer. Um, and so there were times where the executive in, in Japan would say, why are there so many regulators? Like once we got the bit license and then we got like a subpoena from, um, the New York attorney general, they were like, well, who's the New York attorney general? I thought New York DFS was our regulator. So it was like always this constant, like needing to explain because candidly, like the U S regulatory landscape is insane compared to other jurisdictions. It just looks insane. (laughs) Yeah. I can imagine going back and forth, especially like not only with the time difference, but also with, you know, the regulatory differences and everything, you you had your work cut out for you, <laughs> for, for sure. It, yeah, it wasn't, I mean, I think um, maybe I'm good at, and maybe like LinkedIn and Twitter and stuff allows people to make it seem like their paths have been like smooth sailing, you know, nothing, um, nothing about these transitions or these roles were easy. There was a lot of like very long nights and, um, stressful conversations, um, heated conversations internally. Like there, you know, there's a lot of things you have to iron out. So, um, but I think, I think just being like sort of educated in your decision-making and then confident in it has helped me a lot because I, as long as I've done the work and know what I'm talking about is it doesn't really matter how it's, if a regulator or a client or a executive like pushes back, you can confidently like support your position. Yeah. And and with all your experience to going from working at these crypto related companies to going back into private practice at Anderson Kill, I can imagine gave you some really good background on what clients would need and helped you service clients better. Are there any other benefits for young lawyers to consider going in-house at the beginning of their career as opposed to staying in private practice? Because I'm trying to wrap my head around the idea of, okay, I'm in private practice, so some of the work I do touches crypto, but I I do want to do more in this space. At the same time, I still have so much to learn, and I know that the lawyers that I work with are, are teaching me every day something new. So how did you sort of think about that? And looking back, what are your thoughts on your learnings in the two different areas? Yeah, I mean, to be really blunt, like there there are pros and cons of both. Um, To become in-house at a company means you're comfortable with that being your only client ever. And so in, in, um, in the law firm world, like you have 10, 20, 100 clients. And if one says, I don't like I don't like how you do things. We're going to go with a different firm. No problem. Right. But um, you really have to be sure that the working relationship with that company and the way that company is willing to do things is in line with, with what your how you think of things. Because if you join a company and you tell them, no, we can't do this. And they say, man, we're doing it anyways. You're going to have a lot of like headaches and stress. Um, so that, that was one thing I considered. Um, also, you know, I, I, it is harder. I, I got, I was very fortunate to, to sort of become in-house, um, young in my career. Usually companies are not looking for a young sort of general counsel or in-house counsel. Um, I did things that I think 
made it so my focus in crypto for in-house was stronger. So I got my ACAM certification when I was at the first company that did traditional currency exchange dollar X. They were kind enough to, to pay for and sponsor me getting ACAMs. It's not that expensive of a um, certification and it's certainly a lot easier to get than a legal degree or some other courses and tests you could do. But I think that just like thinking of ways to add to your resume um, to be in-house helps. But, you know, now that I'm back in private practice and I, I'm back at it's sort of in law firm world and I didn't really know if I would go back because in being in-house is pretty, um, you don't have billable hours, you have a salary, you sort of know what your day-to-day -day looks like after a while you know, the people you're going to have to interact with. Um, so there's just some nice parts of being, being in-house. But, um, but going back to the law firm world has given me the opportunity to once again sort of have that bird's eye view of the industry again, which is really exciting when you love the industry and you want to keep up with what's going on because um, you start to see, oh, the the these enforcement actions are starting to happen behind the scenes and you just, you see what more companies are dealing with than you would in-house. So it's mainly about sort of pro and cons and um, probably also sort of you, what you want your work-life balance to look like, honestly, because I do think in-house tends to be more consistent hours Um um, not needing to do billable hours and that sort of thing. So I've seen, I've seen the good and bad of both. And when you decided to join Anderson Kill and, and get back into private practice, what were maybe some of the most, maybe the one or two most important pros and cons you were weighing? And then why did you end up making that decision? And then we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about what work you specialize in. Uh, but what were, what were some factors that helped you make that decision? Well, I mean, I think the crypto space is really interesting because there's only, I don't know, let's let's say there's 10 reputable, you know, very highly respected law firms in the space. And there's other consultants and different companies, but let's say that. And I mean, after the years I've been in the space, I kind of know most of the well-known attorneys. And I've always had a ton of respect for um, two of my main law per partners, um, Stephen Pally and Preston Byrne. I had, I remember Stephen, he jokes about this sometimes, like when I was at Coinbase, he said, if you ever leave Coinbase and you don't let me know, I'm going to be really upset. So I already, ha I had that firm in mind, um, but I also really respect other attorneys at other firms. And, um, and so I was sort of weighing, I felt like Anderson Kill was still, I mean, first off, they were very, um, open to bringing me on as partner. That was definitely a huge part of my decision. Um, I, I respected that there wasn't a huge sort of like negotiation or back and forth about that. It was pretty much like you've, you've paid your dues, you've proven yourself in this industry, like that's what you deserve to be, which was felt really nice. Um, and I'm not sure I would have gotten that same level of support or like brought on as a partner at, a, at, at some of the bigger firms. But I also appreciated that I felt like Anderson Kill was willing to sort of 
uh, be lean and, and move quickly because like you mentioned earlier, um, from all my years in house, I know what these clients in the space want. And sometimes when they send you an email freaking out about something, um, they don't need a 10 page memo telling them what to do, right? Like the, like the different legal analysis, sometimes they do. And sometimes that's what we do for clients, but sometimes they're just like, we got this, how do we, what do we do? How should we respond? It's voluntary, you know, that sort of thing. And so, so I felt like Anderson Kill um, was in line with my thoughts on that, where there's a time and a place to sort of document and create memos and create work product. But there's sometimes where a few quick calls and getting involved in an issue is a lot better than sort of over papering it. Um, and so I was excited about that because law and regulation in the space get a bad rap sometimes for like stifling innovation and slowing stuff down and like not understanding the potential. So I want to be, I wanted, I've always wanted to be part of companies that are helping to promote the industry. And it's funny because the, the two camps are on the one side, you know, all the regulation is stifling innovation in the space. And the other side is it's the Wild West. There's no regulation. Right. And, and in reality and with anything, the answer is always somewhere in the middle. Now, since since you've been back at Anderson Kill, do you do have a broad practice where if there's a crypto company, they would come and speak with you or wh- where would your niche be in the space if, if you do have one? The wild, wild west narrative drives me absolutely insane because I've been hearing that since I joined Silvergate and to still to still hear it. I'm like, well, what have I been doing in this? What like what is my role then if we're all just doing whatever we want all the time? So our Anderson Kill and our digital asset crypto practice, we can serve any type of cryptocurrency company and even broader than that fintech companies social media platforms we have a few clients in the space um so really anything sort of tech focused um and between me steven preston and a few other partners that specialize in other areas like intellectual property or um, corporate structure and equity we can pretty much help a, a tech client especially crypto client from like beginning to forming their entity and how to deal with employee equity. Um, But when it comes to my specific focus, I come in when a company is either looking to get into the space through uh, in the right way in terms of regulatory relationships. So in terms of state licensing, um, I've represented some clients getting the Uh, bank charters, the OCC trust charters, full purpose charters. I've, um, I, clients come to me when they're going through FinCEN IRS exams. um, And I help facilitate those in terms of gathering documents and just helping sort of facilitate the conversations during the exams. Um, So it's sort of the full gamut. We also, my law firm is very, um, and I'm glad I'm happy about this, very conservative in the sort of token clients we'll take on. Um, And so we don't do like opinion letters about what is a security, what is not, but we certainly help a lot of clients navigate if they want to go down a regulated security SEC path. 
or how to how to handle sort of geofencing off the US if it's not appropriate to be here in the jurisdiction with oversight. So um, so we pretty much have like every type of fintech crypto client. We have some international um, derivative exchanges and those are clients that we would help sort of ensure that they're doing adequate resources to, to geofence off the US. Um, so sort of everything, but but between between the group of partners that lead the practice, there's really no sort of legal crypto question we can't answer. My focus is just primarily on the anti-money laundering, uh, money transmission side of things. And the, and there's so much in that space itself. I worked uh, for an exchange startup when I first graduated from undergrad for a couple months in between going to law school and. I could not believe how much time the CEO spent every single day just speaking with regulators and trying to work out deals with FinCEN and the banks and everything. And it's it seems like a, a bit of a waste of time, but I can see how on the back end getting that done early is sort of like sailing a boat from harbor where you've patched up all the leaks as opposed to leaving with holes in the ship where, yeah, you know, maybe you'll get a couple kilometers or, or miles as, as you guys call them before sinking. but it's something important to, to patch up early. Now, in terms of regulation, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Biden administration's recent headline that came out in the Wall Street Journal. It said, Biden administration embarking on aggressive tack for cryptocurrency. Why, why does this matter? And what's sort of the first thing that comes to mind when you, you see a headline like that? Yeah, so I think, I mean, everything I've seen about the Biden administration has been painted a picture of going aggressive against crypto. And I, I think it's definitely worth noting and following. I'm sure there'll be continued sort of more explicit news coming out. But from the beginning so far, it seems like a lot of the focus is on reporting and alleged sort of tax evasion Um not as much sort of going against the industry itself or banning or anything like that. So I've had some people who are, you know, not as close to the topics that we're discussing sort of say, is crypto going to get banned? Like, I don't think we're anywhere near that sort of level of risk. I think, I think that the Biden administration is under the impression that cryptocurrency is used to avoid taxes. I think more than it actually is. I, I, I think that the sort of focus they have seems to be really misled to me, like um, looking into the pocketbooks of people for $600 transactions or lowering the FinCEN um, re reporting requirements to what, 3000 to 250 or, um, you know, unhosted wallets or mine mining companies, like companies that can't even comply with the reporting requirements. So um, I think that like what it's, in my opinion, what's going to happen is the next few years are probably going to be um, a little bit of an uphill struggle for companies and lawyers and policymakers and, and regulators to say, hey, this is what you don't understand. And this is why what you're trying to change or enforce is not actually going to solve whatever problem you're trying to solve, right? Because that's the biggest issue. Like if we can all say, hey, this is a problem. This is the best solution. Good. 
But if there's some ale- like alleged problem and then the solutions proposed aren't even effective to fix it, the whole thing is just like a mess. So, um, so when I see a you know a headline like that, I, I do. I mean, it's it hasn't been smooth sailing for the industry for ten years, and so I guess I think uh, with, when it comes to reporting tax um, surveillance, um, and then also with like. Gary Ginsler and the SEC and some enforcement actions. I, I think it's going to be a pretty rocky few years, but I think that the industry will come out better than I think we always end up like better than we were. Um, so I, I think we'll, we'll be okay. I know we'll be okay, but yeah, some of the headlines and some of the way the new administration has um, focused negative, more negatively on crypto is frustrating is even like how we I feel like Brian Brooks at the OCC had done such a good job sort of um, pushing forward some not even new regulation or new guidance just clarifying guidance like why is why is crypto or a private key in a security deposit box any different than anything like that's what banks are for um, and I know you know the administration's having sort of all of the, that guidance and clarification reviewed. And so, you know, sort of maybe it's two steps forward, one step back. It'll be interesting to see how they deal with not only just pushback before, but say they do enact a law where miners have to compi- uh, comply with KYC and things that are basically impossible where, okay, this law's passed, now it's not possible. Will, we, will they be flexible and will you be able to adapt or do they go the route of, we want to do this, let's have an open dialogue. And I think what I like most about crypto is the transparency that holds everyone accountable. And I hope the regulatory system follows that mindset. Although notoriously, I mean, they're definitely, there's not a good track record of that, but I'm hopeful that based on, you know, what Hester Pierce said the other day and what, what some of the higher ups could possibly do in the industry, I think there's definitely room for optimism, but I really worry that so many of the top crypto people in the regulatory space who are keen on this area are leaving and going to private practice or going to Coinbase or other big ventures. How do you think that, like, do you, is that something you're worried about as well? Yeah, I think, I think the less amount of support we have in those regulatory bodies, um, the, the, more difficult to, I mean, we almost just start back from scratch needing to educate, which is just makes it difficult. Um, It's sort of the like misinformation or lack of understanding that makes this so frustrating. Um, But it's also like, I think some regulators just don't, I mean, they don't live with the day-to-day frustration. So why I mean, the Howey test works in the SEC's opinion. Why why try to like change a, a whole thing? I mean, I love Hester Pierce's, um, you know, safe harbor proposal. I wrote about it in Forbes. Like, I think that if we have more regulators who are forward thinking and ways to tweak things a little bit, like you cannot just look at a law that didn't comprehend the idea of cryptocurrency and say "Mm, it's good enough it just that doesn't I mean you don't have to write a completely new law but like our I feel like we need to say is that regulator really who should be even regulating the space I mean I think we'll continue to see people from the crypto industry move into those roles I hope that the industry 
maintains like some level of maturity and decorum in these conversations because when companies and CEOs start to get too um too smart ass on Twitter and things like it just it, to me that doesn't help anything go I mean I get them I get everyone's frustration I experience the frustration of myself but yeah I, I think those conversations are are needed to kind of clarify any misunderstandings I get and I get the um I get the company's frustrations on how regulators operate. So like one thing I tweeted when, when the Coinbase Lend thing came out is, you know, it's really annoying that the SEC and other regulators tend to not give reasons behind their decisions, but it's not, that's nothing new, right? Like, I mean, it Japan FSA years ago pretty much said, nope, never privacy coins. Well, why New York DFS has now allowed Zcash? Like, this is why. You know, that some sometimes regulators just make decisions, and so if right now um, the SEC feels that these lending products are securities and they're not going to approve them, they're definitely these companies deserve to be able to have more dialogue with the SEC and figure out how if there's ways to tweak the the products, but. Um, but it's nothing new and it's nothing like to me, like no companies are sort of having like personal getting personally attacked by regulators. Like that's regulators are like kind of forced through their bureaucracy, not to say too much and be pretty tight lipped. So, but not, not belittling these companies frustrations. We, I mean, us at Anderson kill and, and lawyers in the space are hopefully there to help with the the company's frustrations and facilitate some of that. I really wanted to talk to you a bit about Crypto Connect, which uh, I saw you offer and I thought was really cool that you spearheaded this. I'll just read sort of what I have written down of what it is for, for anyone interested. So Crypto Connect is a decentralized crypto network dedicated to sponsoring education, networking and mentorship opportunities for the industry. Now, for me, obviously, diversity is so important for the long-term success in any space. I think if you have more people that you're working with and interested in the space from diverse backgrounds, you can better serve people from diverse backgrounds because in the world we live in, everyone's interconnected. Um, and what I also like about this initiative is it's female-led, yet open to everyone, too, because I see a lot of, you know, these female conferences and, like, I don't feel like I could attend because I'm not a female. Right. And so it's kind of like, but it'd be cool to go network with a bunch of other people interested in the space. Could you explain a bit about why you started Crypto Connect and why you think now is the right time for the industry? Yeah, um, no. And thanks for I mean, I, I think that it's a great thing to like note on the front end is like, I think diversity and whatever that means, whether it be racial, gender, background, financial background, diversity, um, wealth and income, diversity backgrounds, all of that's important to the space because cryptocurrency benefits everyone in a certain way and not having those perspectives, um, I think just is, is not a good thing for the industry as a whole. Um, that said, there's, I, there's irony in having a, a organization that's for women who have felt excluded 
and then by doing so excluding other people it's just kind of ironic and and it doesn't make much sense um and so i mean the re the purpose for crypto connect didn't actually come with diversity as like the number one i um i think that we're all sort sort of trying to figure out our way of maneuvering in the this sort of like covid era where people are most people are working from home a lot of people are almost like nomads where they're traveling a lot i just got back from like a six week road trip um between texas and california and uh and i had done a lot of traveling the last year just um for for different crypto related meetups or events or client meetings and so through that i started to see you know there are so many cool like Bitcoin and crypto meetups in certain areas. There's cool events that are hosted every year, the Bitcoin Miami conference consensus, you know, all these great things, but there's not, it took me a lot of effort to Google and tweet, Hey, I'm going to Nashville. Who lives here? Is anything going on? Is there already a Bitcoin meetup I could attend? Does anyone want to host one with me? It took me like really pinging into my um, different like social networks and like or my connections. And I was like, already feeling frustrated and thought, well, what, how is everyone else doing this? You know, if there's not this sort of like crypto connect, like, or, you know, like an organizational umbrella over this, where anywhere you go in the world, you could immediately ping into that, like, in um, network and community there. Um, so I just started thinking about that and having a conversations with a lot of people um, and a lot of the women who are helping me lead the organization are, are just other women who had that same frustration or had already sort of created that sense of community with me over the years where it was just someone I knew I could rely on for mentorship or introductions in the space or to grab dinner when I was in town. Um, and so it just sort of snowballed from there. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about it. Like I thought that the, our launch was a few weeks ago. I think it was received really well. We put a lot of thought into sort of that, um, how it would come off to the industry because men and women have been such amazing mentors in my career. And I actually think if you create like, you know, say this was, was a female led organization that was only women events we were hosting that we wouldn't actually be helping people in the space meet potential clients or mentors or because we'd only be introducing them to 50% of the, you know, population. Um, and so I'm super excited because I think it'll just, I mean, I've already seen with the, the, the organizations led by 26 board members, 12 of which are also city leads um, all, all women. And I've already seen like within that group of 26 people, like connections being made and business being drummed up and, um, oh, I'm going to be here for the NFT, you know, conference next week. Who's going to be there? Do you want to co-host a dinner? Like there's just already all this like buzz going on. So, um, so yeah, we're, we're planning our first, the, the, the goal of Crypto Connect is to host quarterly meetups uh, eventually a conference in the US and for Q2 of next year for us to expand internationally. So I know you're in Canada, like have a Canadian, I'll actually need to get some geography lessons from you in Canada of like how the 
what are they provinces? <laughs> yeah, you got it. Okay. Provinces, provinces and territories. Okay, so we'll have, I'll have to figure, break up the provinces. You could be the chapter lead of whatever province you're in. Um, you know, as we ex- start to expand to other cities, provinces, uh, countries, I think the leads should be from any background they want. And um, I'm super excited. We already had um, on the day of our launch, we had someone reach out from Latin America, Mexico, Dubai, um, Africa, some some really cool countries being like, when can I start the Crypto Connect here? And I was like, well, uh, like, I just need a second. I need to figure out how we're going to host this event in New York next month. But um, I think that the international expansion might happen quicker than we think. And I think I think uh, Mexico and Canada should definitely be sooner, you know, sooner than later and just keep going. I agree. I think you should prioritize Canada uh, for sure. And I'd be happy to help with, you know, setting that up in Toronto because I think a lot of people are interested. And I know personally, I've been trying to meet up with people in the space and it's hard to go individually one by one and message every single person who's in the space you have one area that you go to and everyone else knows, you know, here's this decentralized organization that I can access. It's a no brainer. And now in terms of, in terms of how people could find it, would they just go to cryptoconnect.com? It's yeah, it's cryptoconnect.org. We have, I I admit we have kind of a, we have a sign up form. I'm trying to figure out a way to make it a little bit more streamlined, but what the form asks for is, you know, name and title, um, we have one of our board, a few of our board members even use their sort of pseudo anonymous name that they use on Twitter. I don't care about that, but you, you would say what, um, what chapter you want to be affiliated with and what, um, area, like what industry you're in so that we can start to create like, you know, who lives in New York and who is an attorney or compliance in New York that wants to meet, um, so yeah, cryptoconnect.org, uh, you go to the contact link on the page and there's a form and uh, and we're hosting our first 12 meetups the first two weeks of November. I just I actually just before this got off the call with the 26 board members. We have a, um, you know, our, our board member calls and we finally have ironed out the date. So we're going to start um, advertising those in a few weeks, probably, I guess by the time this airs, it'll probably be a week or two until the actual meetup. So um, we're super excited about that. And we'll see how it keeps sort of organically unfolding over the next few months and next year. I'm excited to see it. I'll put a link in the show notes to both the website and the contact page too, if people want to sign up, because I'm sure a lot of people will want to be part of it. Um, I, I think it's a great initiative. I'm looking forward to seeing you roll it out. Now, I wanted to just briefly talk about NFTs. I know, you know, maybe you're a Bitcoin maximalist. <laughs> I saw you tweet about that today, so I'm just <laughs> kidding. But uh, in terms of NFTs, I mean, do you own any? Do you have any favorites? Do you, do you think they're cool? Do you think they're ridiculous? What, what's your thoughts? Yeah, so um, I think they're cool. I don't own any. Um, and yeah, my tweet about being a Bitcoin maximalist, like I just... Uh, so I, I prefer Bitcoin. I'm, my portfolio is like 99% Bitcoin. It always has been, but I, I definitely delve into other things. And I, part of that tweet about, you know, someone lecturing me about Bitcoin maximalists is like, I think some people take it too far where they're like, nothing should ever be created if it's not 
related to Bitcoin. So like the fact that most NFTs are built on the Ethereum network, like I, NFTs are cool. Um, yeah, I don't own any in part because for me, like I would rather invest in the like in Bitcoin and, and a few other projects themselves. Um, I also am not like a big art, you know, like I, I don't own sort of the the in-person equivalent of NFTs either. Um, but I think they're really neat. And, and I actually have a lot of clients in this space. I mean, one of pretty much when I joined Anderson Kill is when the NFT sort of wave came about. And um, there's a few that have been kind of public knowledge that we've been involved in. One was a, a soccer team in Mexico that used NFTs to um, sell 1% of the the football like soccer team in Mexico. Um, I also have worked a lot with um, NFT Glee, which is kind of a cool project. It was, they partnered with Bitcoin Magazine to do the first like forever whale pass, which is an NFT that will give you access to the um, Bitcoin Magazine's conference every year uh, indefinitely. And they did partner with Liquid to create the first NFT built on the Bitcoin network. So, um, so those are a few that I'm like more familiar with. But more recently, I've been talking with a lot of people who are looking to use NFTs to um, kind of like how crypto removed the need for the middleman in finance. Um, the way NFTs can remove the middleman when it comes to, or, or middlewoman, <laughs> when it comes to um, whether it be, um, you know, I, I was talking to like a, an independent film festival, independent film uh, actress the other day. And she said, you know, I last year put my independent film on Netflix and I, I ended up getting in like the top five or 10 short films on Netflix and they gave me like a $10,000 bonus. And besides that, I was making pennies. Um, and she's like, now I'm going through an NFT company and I'm, I'm allowing people to actually like help fundraise for the, for the, um, independent film. I'm making so much more money than I did last year. Um, fans are feeling a lot more engaged. So I can see how, uh, NFTs just like kind of give power back to people and transparency back to some of these industries. And I think that's really cool. Um, so I like them, but I don't own any. Do you own any? <laughs> I had, I had sold one actually a couple days ago. It was oh, yeah? a, a Solana token, um, okay. a, a Solana NFT. And I bought it and I, it's probably like one of my most expensive purchases. And I sold it for like way more than I was expecting. And okay. the problem is, though, I do believe that they'll have a lot of use long term, but I just looked at the price and it like helps me pay down student debt. It's whenever the, the pot's, you know, too hot, it's going to boil over eventually. And I think we are at the point right now where it's really hot. And, and every pro I mean, some of the projects, I'll be honest, I think are really ugly. I'm not a huge art guy myself either. And so that's why I had to sell mine. I realized, like, I'm not an art guy at all. But I, I do think NFTs are interesting. I, I like like it was a good experience to buy one, like from a monetary and a learning perspective too. Uh, but yeah, no, no, it, it kind of motivates me to, um, yeah, from the learning. I mean, obviously any monetary gains awesome, but yeah, I can see how 
that would really give you a better understanding of like, I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of these NFT sites and, and gone through sort of the, the flow of things, but I can see how, I, I mean, I think like get, getting your hands dirty in any of this, get, like you immediately see how it functions and the pros and cons. Um, but yeah, we, I have, I've spoken to a lot of prospective clients who are going that sort of membership base, because if you think about it all in NFT, like what an NFT means, it's non-fungible, so it is specific, right? So there's some companies working on NFTs who, uh, where if you held on to that NFT, the way right now you have to go to websites and log in to get through like the firewall or the paywall of websites, the NFT would um, be specific to any paywalls that you've already paid to be members through, and it would just like get you through all of those. So um, so yeah, I think, I think that's a big area. And I mean, I, I think that there are plenty of silly projects in the NFT space, but then I also look at actual artwork that people pay millions of dollars for. And it's like a stroke of paint across a canvas. And you're like, well, to each their own. Like, I mean, it's not, I don't, I mean, if you want to pay for that, I don't, it's not, it's not my business. As long as it's not a scam or illegal, like I, I think there should be a free market. So I completely agree. I always used to be confused in art galleries when there was one, it looks like someone just dumped cans of paint on the picture. And, yeah. you know, the, the price was like a million dollars and it just made me shake my head. But people have their own tastes, I guess. Um, now I, I do want to be respectful of your time. So if, if you do need to go, please let me know. I'm not sure. I do have a couple, just a couple more questions. The first one was Twitter. And I, I think you are the person with the most followers who follows me. So, so thank you. Um, what, what did you do at the early stage of your career to build a following? And why is that important for lawyers to do? Because I think a lot of people get out of law school and they think, oh, like now I just need to apply the law. But there's so much more to being a lawyer. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. Like, I mean, I, I remember starting to follow some um, other lawyers that I respected on Twitter really early in my career. I remember Marco Santori when I was at Silvergate Bank, I would interact with him. Um, he was at Cooley at the time. I don't know. I think he had like 11,000 followers or something. I was just like, oh my God, Marco's so cool. Like everyone, everyone knows him and like, they don't think of him as like an annoying lawyer. And, uh, but I remember he would do these threads that were so informative and in real time. And I started to think like, wow, you know, this space moves so quickly. And we kind of talked about this earlier that you really can't, I mean, if you wait for the Wall Street Journal, it might be 24 hour, 48 hours later, and it's still good. It's still important to like read those articles because the journalists have dug deep and gotten quotes and really got it. But it's cool to like see things happen in real time. I also, I mean, from like a business development perspective and a networking perspective, I've met so many people through Twitter um, and I really use Twitter as the way I hope people start to use Crypto Connect moving forward. Um, but, you know, Twitter is a, it's an asset and a liability because um, you have to be careful about what you share, uh, what you say, and um and also it can just turn into sort of a an unpleasant experience, you know, if people start to be like really mean, you know, sort of like cyberbullying and all of a sudden you're like getting your feelings hurt <laughs> instead of like sharing an, a cool crypto article. It's like you, you have to find that right balance. Um, 
And I think also like depending, I think different companies probably view the use of social media differently, right? Like, so when I was at Coinbase, I don't think my Twitter, big Twitter following was viewed as much of an asset because everyone already knows who Coinbase is, right? I don't need to like, they don't need this rogue employee tweeting. And so I, I think there I was more cautious uh, and tried to stay a lot more um, 100% just on like retweeting articles. Whereas now um, at Anderson Kill, I think like me and my partners enjoy sort of sharing our personalities with people and like keeping it humorous and, um, but, but keeping it business focused too. And, um, you know, right, like I write for Forbes. So it's a platform for me to share those articles. Um, if I find out about some breaking news, um, and can kind of just share a, a tweet on my thoughts of things, I feel like I'm helping educate the industry and help spread that news sooner. Um, especially when it came to like the infrastructure bill things earlier in the year, like I think when people start to see your name, associated with sort of real-time legal updates they know that you know your stuff and that you're following it and that if they were a client you and that somehow impacted them at all that after that tweet goes out they're also going to get an email from you saying hey you know we we sent you that memo last month but this thing happened 10 minutes ago and we should jump on a call and see if it changes anything about your business model or the risk you're willing to take. Um, so, so that's sort of the value I see in it is like um, from a business development and like, um, yeah, just the, the ability to connect with more people. Um, but definitely, you know, I think some people get a little too edgy on there and then, they, and then it comes off just like um, offend, offends people or gets too political. And so I try hard to find that right balance of not going to those areas. Yeah, I definitely think you you do a great job of, of staying in that balance. And I know I definitely learn a lot from your tweets. And I like what you said about the threads too, because I have seen a lot of really valuable threads. What What makes me hesitate, and I just want to bounce this off you, is that I feel like I don't know enough, which obviously I don't know enough, but I don't know enough to write a valuable thread did you ever have feelings like that or what what would you say to someone and i'm sure there's others like me who who think that what do you yeah. say to people like that well i think um i've definitely have felt that way and at those times i don't do a thread i retweet um marcos or um like a few there's a few attorneys in the space that i think do better threads on breaking news than i do and so but i still think there's value in retweeting those because you know you would have you have a different following than me right so if i tweet something that you find helpful um and you have more of sort of the canadian legal um or, or just Canadian crypto sort of following that exposes them to my thoughts. And so um, I try, I try to like, I actually, when I see something that someone else that I respect shares, I try to think, do I have anything more valuable to add or should I just retweet this? And if I don't, then I really do just try to give them that like time to shine because what, what you're really trying to do is give people the most valuable information. Um, I mean, I think a question you asked earlier was how I sort of like actually got started to get followers. And I think it's about people with a lot of followers 
following your content, liking what you post, retweeting. Um, I also remember early in my career, like I would, um, like when you share an article, if you at the um, publication that did it, sometimes they'll retweet it. So like Coindesk or Forbes Crypto or that sort of thing. So I remember, I didn't even like think of that as a trick or know that, but a few times I would tweet something that like Coindesk had, had published and then they'd retweet it and I'd be like, oh my God, they're like a million followers. So just like, I mean, there are little, little tricks like that. Um, I mean, I think some people pay for their followers, certainly a bad idea because you can always tell, right? It's like, I tweeted about that the other day, like someone who has a hundred thousand followers and then gets like two likes and you're like, that's suspicious. Like what's, <laughs> what's and you lose there? You lose credibility so quickly and then you don't get any new followers as well. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it needs to be organic. And I mean, I really just try to share things that are helpful. Um, and I try not to focus on the, on the, on the Twitter numbers, because that's, it's more about like what you're sharing for the industry and people finding it valuable. Yeah. I would definitely well, second that. <laughs> Funny, I think humor is always important. Uh, but I think for when you're practicing law, you have to be careful where your humor comes from and where it's pointed at as well. Uh, and the more the more clients like now that i'm at anderson kill me and my partners actually will like if news breaks that somehow relates at all to any of our clients or um just would be better not to to share or opine on we say hey reminder we represent this entity that's related to this entity somehow so don't you know you the more clients you get the less you can talk about really Right. And so I assume you have no marmot related uh, clients. <laughs> <laughs> I know. The, the marmot and, uh, and herring jokes are nonstop internally. And I'm just like, they, at one point I was told I needed to find like my spirit animal, but I haven't yet. Still looking. Are there any top considerations? Um, I think I had said bear, but then that was obviously a bad choice because of like a bear market. So (laughs) bad sentiment you don't want to be associated with. Yeah, Maybe I'm a bull. We'll do that. (laughs) A bull's a good one. A bull's a good one. Just a a quick rapid fire questions. But before actually I get to those two, I want to echo your point about adding value on Twitter. That's like, I remember when I started and I still only have around 500 followers, but when I started, I had like 10 followers and I was tweeting every day about crypto and it felt like yelling into the void, you know, yelling down into your basement and you know, nobody's there. But then once I wrote the who's who of crypto law Twitter, and then I started engaging with people like yourself, that's where it was like, okay, you know, maybe this guy doesn't know anything about the laws right now, but he's interested in the space and and he's going to, you know, amalgamate different information. So I think anyone interested should definitely start there. Now to get to the rapid fire questions, the first one is, What's one thing that you wish you knew, or maybe the one thing you did know that was great advice passed on to you before you started your legal career or as your legal career started to ramp up? Um, I think that probably the best thing I've kept in mind is um, to not burn bridges. Like there are a lot, there's been companies that I feel like have done me wrong or individuals I personally just am like "Mm," about. And like, um, I really hate sort of gossip or talking behind people's back. And I think that sometimes, especially in the crypto space, I've seen it almost feel a little bit 
immature in that way where people are willing to like hate someone or verbally say something negative. Um, I just really don't, I mean, unless if you have, if you differ opinions and you want to express those differing opinions all for that, but I don't really, I don't think there's any value in like making enemies. If I disagree with someone that much, then I just won't associate with them. Um, but so that's one thing because I think there people can, it's a small industry and people stay in this industry. And so there, you figure out ways to like be amicable with, with everybody. And I think that's one thing. Um, and also just like really, like we talked about earlier in the show, not being afraid to take risks. I mean, I'm certainly not telling all the attorneys or people listening in, like quit your job and try to join Silvergate. But, um, but you know, there's been times in my, there's been times in my career where I've been in between jobs trying to figure it out. And so, you know, sometimes it's okay to not have it be perfect and then, and then find where you're supposed to be. Now, in terms of being a lawyer, once you've been, you've gone through that first couple of years figuring things out, then you want to take the step from being a good to great lawyer. And and one thing I was always told during my very short and not illustrative basketball career was good is the enemy of great, right? It's so easy to be good and just stay average and, and you know, go to do your nine to five. What do you think takes people from a good lawyer to a great lawyer? I think like actually caring. I mean, I think that like any type of lawyer can be great if you actually care about what you're doing. Um, and that's honestly a bit why after a year as an associate doing commercial litigation and personal injury, I just me I personally couldn't find that. Part of it is that as an associate, it's hard because you don't actually get to interface with the client as much. You don't get to like have those interpersonal, you're kind of like in the back office drafting documents. Um, but if you can really like channel that and know that you're helping someone or helping a company or doing something you're passionate about, I think I think passion is all part of it. Um, and that's what I mean more when I say like taking a risk is like, um, is it really risky to like leave a job that you feel no excitement about um, or not even leave a job, but in your free time, spend your nights doing a podcast like this instead of watching TV. Like just, is it really worth not taking that chance to just keep propelling yourself in the direction you want to go? I think that's so important. And, and following a, a career that doesn't feel like work. And I, I'm sure you feel the same sentiment where if you're doing something like a crypto meetup doesn't feel like a work thing to you. Whereas maybe a personal injury lawyer meetup <laughs> might feel a little different, right? Uh, one question for you too, and then and then I'll let you go. But I was really curious about your public speaking and wanted to talk to you a bit about that because I think that's something that's so important for lawyers to do. And I noticed you're very prominent in the space, and and that was my where I first found you was you were speaking at all these all these conferences. Could, for me, it seems like okay, I'd love to do that, but I'd be a little, I'd get definitely some imposter syndrome, and it'd be okay. You know, do you know as much as you think you know in the space? So. What, how did you first get into public speaking? Did you ease into it? And then how have you become better over time? Yeah, um, I did ease into it. I think I think most people have that imposter syndrome at times. And I used to be 
morbidly terrified of public speaking. I was so terrified. I'm trying to think of some of the, I mean, I, I think probably the first big conference I spoke at was Bitcoin 2019. It was in San Francisco. Um, now it's in Miami, but it was in San Francisco. And that was when I was at Bitflyer. And I, I was, I was actually so terrified that I um, found a, a speaking coach and I only met with her once because I didn't really have enough time. But she ended up giving me a few um, pointers on just like getting over that first minute or two when you're on stage and you're like pale and um, feel like you're like feel like a voice isn't going to come out. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm actually happy at the end of this to like rattle off some of the things she taught me. But um, yeah, I, I did ease into it and I just really pushed myself and. Um, I mean, I think at first when you get into public speaking, like you probably over-prepare, you know what I mean? Like, I think once, like now at this point, I don't feel like I prepare as much as I used to, but I remember like really pushing the panelists and the moderators to get questions ahead of time and researching those topics, even though it was like sort of my day-to-day, but it's like that imposter syndrome you you spoke of, like you feel like you want to be able to bring more like very deep intel and insight into the conversation. So, I mean, I think that, um, I think public speaking is important. Like I always, I like to be pretty um, candid about my like anxiety around it. Cause I think some people think that good public speakers are always just people who don't have a fear of public speaking. I don't think that's true at all. Like some of the best lawyers and judges I've ever met who are like, in their fifties and sixties say, if you don't have butterflies before a hearing or before a presentation, like, what are you even doing? Like, and you don't feel like anything's on the line. So that's all part of it. Um, but yeah, I, I eased into it. And then now I really like, I have some, you know, friends even, and also people on my marketing team that really like look out for these different conferences and most conferences have like a speaker request form that you can fill out and say, I'd really like to speak if there's a panel about this. Um, And most of the, I mean, still like I'm usually like the least important person on the panel and that's okay. So, so the imposter syndrome shouldn't like prevent you. And if you are up there and can learn a lot from the other panelists, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm glad you said that about feeling nervous before, too, because I think a lot of people look at someone like yourself and people speaking, you know, in front of tens of thousands of people and think, oh, you know, obviously she doesn't get nervous. Like, look, and and it's, I mean, good on you for overcoming that and, and playing offense, you know, as it was evidenced throughout your career, getting a speaking coach as well, too. I, I, that's something I want to do because I just think the value in public speaking is there. And if you can get good at it at a young age, that'll really, you know, propel your career. Now, so and so just the few things that I have found really effective, as she said, before you go on stage to actually do a few, yawn a few times because it lulls your body into feeling like, Pretty much, pretty much anxiety about anything is fight, fight or flight. You feel like you are going to need to like um, go into that mode. <laughs> so if you if you yawn a few times um, before, go, don't do it on stage or you'll, you'll, right. look, or you'll look rude, but before. So I actually like sometimes behind stage, um, I'll be drinking like a chamomile tea and yawning 
Um, That's a good I, idea. Yeah. And I think is, you know, like now, and that was for me, that was years ago where I really had to do that. And then eventually you, you're like, it's like the fear of anything. If you do it a few times, you're like, oh, that wasn't so bad. That's okay. Um, and that the fear of public speaking for me, at least really disappears after the first 30 seconds. Once you say, hi, I'm Haley. It's like, all right, now we know what we're doing. It's sort of um, like working out where the hardest part is doing up your shoes and getting in the gym as opposed to actually, you know, starting the work or doing the workout. No, it's true for sure. Um, yeah. She also, I mean, she, the rationale behind the fear of public speaking is interesting too. She said that um, like back, back, like, caveman era the only time you would ever have so many eyes looking at you is if you were prey like if you were in the jungle and like a forest of tigers was looking out of the trees. so so that kind of has helped me too because now I'm like oh that's like I'm not prey those aren't in like those aren't enemies those are people out here wanting to hear what I have to say so she just gave like little helpful things like that where um yeah, now I can just, and her third biggest suggestion was don't just sit there waiting to say what you want to say, actually listen to what your panelists are talking about or the fireside chat, because you're like, use it as an opportunity to learn. Don't just sit there thinking, oh no, everyone's looking at me. What am I going to say next? Yeah. I can imagine that it, it was so helpful for you to have just those things to reference because then you get out of that spiral of, oh, I'm going to mess up. I'm going to mess up. And then, you know, start to bring that in. But if you think, okay, let's try to yawn, you know, yeah, that, yeah. that would definitely, <laughs> would definitely help it. Those are, no, those are great ones. It's interesting. I was, uh, the contracts TA for, for law school in my second and third years. And I remember thinking, you know, it's no big deal. Like I don't have to rehearse or anything. I know this stuff inside and out. And then an hour before the first day, I was like sweating. I was so nervous and I didn't, I, I really couldn't understand why, but it's interesting to know that that's sort of the, the eyes and the idea that everyone's going to be looking at you is really, you know, prehistoric and, and yeah. within us. It is right. It's like all biological, like normal, but um, yeah, actually I, I, I've been meaning to do a tweet on like tips for public mm -hmm. speaking anxiety. So you, I'll do, I'll do that. That'd be great. Yeah. You mentioned, I think you had mentioned something that you were going to put out a tweet. And so I'm that, that would be great. I think it's something that everyone, you know, is a little intimidated by whether they admit it or not, because you are capturing people's attention for so long and you want to add value. And you know, when other people are speaking, subconsciously you're judging them a little bit or you're having some thoughts or you're not interested. And so I think it's, yeah, it's definitely something to, to keep in mind, but thank you so much, Haley. Now in terms of where, where people can get in touch with you, you know, if they want to talk to you about crypto or, or talk to you about the legal side of things. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I'm, I'm on Twitter, Haley Lennon BTC. I I'm sorry, but I do have my DMS closed unless I follow the person back. But sometimes when someone asks me on Twitter, I'll follow them back. Um, but, but also my work email is, is accessible online. It's just H Lennon at AndersonKill.com. Um, so, so Twitter and email are, are the best ways. And, um, yeah, this is a great conversation. I really appreciate you having me on.